The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. What a difference a day makes. And in the case of the Bible, two days can make a really big difference. Here's that important verse from 2 Peter 3.8. It says, Beloved, don't let this one thing be hidden from you, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. We're going to look at what that Bible timetable means for us today. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. Concerning the revival of the nation of Israel, the prophet Hosea in chapter 6 and verse 2 gives us a timetable of great significance. You see, Hosea prophesied that God will revive us after two days and he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. According to Bible chronology, the age of the Gentiles and of the church will last for two days out of God's seven days of history, or that amounts to 2,000 years out of the 6,000 years of man. Then there remains yet to come the millennium, God's Sabbath day of rest, the seventh day, the promised millennial 1,000-year rule of the soon-returning resurrected Messiah, to occupy David's throne in Jerusalem. But of course, it'll take biblical faith to believe this, that Bible chronology was all planned by a loving God and that he's bringing the time in which you and I live to a culmination. I've been dealing with some skeptics about the second coming lately and the Bible after all does predict that in the last days, scoffers will simply refuse to believe that Jesus is returning as he promised that he would. They have a tone of jadedness in their skeptical voices. I know that sound, I hear it from time to time, even in the churches. But this is what the apostle Peter predicted. He said in 2 Peter 3, first knowing this, that in the last day, scoffers will come with scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will mock, saying, so what's happened to the promise of his coming? Our ancestors are dead and buried and everything's going on just as it has from the first day of creation. Nothing's changed. Well, do you hear the tone of sarcasm in that? That prophecy by Peter tells us that people will be ignorant of the truth because a lot has, in fact, changed. They might say nothing has changed, it's business and life as usual, but believe me, a lot has changed. Let me tell you what time it is prophetically. The times of the Gentiles are almost concluded, and God is getting ready to hand the keys of the kingdom back to Israel. And when that happens soon, that will be a big shock to apostates in Rome and to other professing Christians who've immersed themselves in replacement theology, denying Israel's rightful role in God's plan of redemption. If you understand why God in his faithfulness has resurrected the ancient nation of Israel, and if you're not opposing God's end time agenda, you are on the right side of history. 
But I have to say, woe to those who boycott God's holy purposes, either out of ignorance or arrogance. Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives that when you see Jerusalem no longer in the hands of the Gentiles, in other words, when you see Jerusalem ruled once again by Jewish authorities, he said his coming would be on the horizon. The chronology of the Bible consists of lifespans and generations to mark the passage of Old Testament events over 4,000 years. And on top of that, We've also had about 2,000 years of church history, adding up to nearly 6,000 years of man. As recently as the 18th century, scholars of the statue of Sir Isaac Newton believed that the date of creation was knowable from the Bible. You see, God laid down a timetable or template in the seven days of creation. The Bible is a remarkable book made up of 66 books written by about 40 different authors, yet it contains a consistent message. And the Bible contains commentaries within itself. This Bible interprets the Bible. This book is God-breathed with knowledge of past, present, and future events that the 40 authors couldn't have possessed individually. When you correctly divide scripture, you realize that God has assigned 6,000 years of history to mankind, and there will be an additional 1,000 years for the rule of Messiah, totally, totaling 7,000 years in all, or seven days in God's sight. But although no generation before ours has been given more signs to help us recognize that Jesus will be returning soon, it still never ceases to amaze me how the skeptics and scoffers simply cannot recognize the signs of the times as plain as they are, especially when it comes to the state of Israel. Every generation has seen pestilences, earthquakes, and wars, and so forth, but ours is the only generation that after 2,000 years has seen the rebirth of the ancient biblical people with their own homeland and nation, the state of Israel. And don't forget, the signs in the heavens, the tetrads of blood moons marking key events in Israel's restoration, even today's inordinate anti-Semitism and hatred of the Jews should alert any Bible believer that satanic forces are deeply disturbed at what's happening. The alarming rising again of anti-Semitism proves that Satan is scared and opposing the return of Israel's Messiah, Yeshua. If Satan can destroy Israel, he can stop Messiah's return, but he won't be able to do that. Hallelujah. Recently, I found a list of a number of identification marks of the last days, and these included unprecedented warfare, famine, pestilences, increased lawlessness, earthquakes, critical times hard to deal with, an inordinate love of money, disobedience to parents, a lack of natural affection, loving pleasures rather than God, a lack of self-control, and the ability not to understand impending danger, scoffers rejecting proof of the last days, and global preaching of God's kingdom. 
Well, as good as this list is, it's not comprehensive. And what's obviously missing? Well, the list doesn't acknowledge the main identifying mark of the last days, and that is the reemergence of the nation of Israel as a country again in the Holy Land, just as Jesus and God said what happened prior to the second coming of Jesus. The bottom line is that it's going to take faith, my friends, to believe that Jesus will keep his promise to return again and come and collect us from the chaos. Even Jesus asked in the Gospels, he said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? So this takes me to the epistle of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And I discovered that there are three kinds of faith mentioned in that little New Testament book. And the Bible exposition commentary has been helpful in preparing this program. Faith is certainly an essential element in the life of believers. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The believer is not saved by works, but by faith. And we're supposed to live and walk by faith. In fact, whatever we do apart from faith is described in Romans 14:23 as sin. Wow. So faith is very important. And we must learn that there are different kinds of faith. But only one kind of faith is truly saving faith. Now let's turn to James chapter 2, because in it we find the brother of our Lord discussing the different kinds of faith with an emphasis upon the kind of faith that's able to save our souls. Beginning with verses 14 to 17, we notice the first kind of faith. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, no works? Can such faith save them? He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, he said, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So James described this brand of faith as dead faith. And dead faith substitutes words for actions and good deeds, mitzvot. People with dead faith can even talk faith by quoting the right verses from the Bible, but their walk doesn't add up to their talk. It's a mental ascent faith only. A person may know all about the doctrine of salvation and may have studied the Bible and even gone to Bible school, but if they've never really submitted themselves to God and trusted in Jesus for salvation, their faith isn't genuine. They may know the right spiritual lingo, but their words aren't backed up with corresponding works. So can dead faith have the power to save anybody? The answer obviously is no. And I discovered that three times in this second chapter of James, he emphasizes that faith without works is dead. I'd never noticed that before, but James chapter two actually states three times that faith without works is dead or barren. Bible scholars say any declaration of faith that doesn't result in a transformed life and good works, exploits, is a false declaration. It's simply dead faith. 
And of course, dead faith is the opposite of life and it's dangerous because it has the capacity to lull a person into a false confidence, a false security concerning eternal life and our relationship with God. So it's good to ask from time to time if my walk of faith is measuring up with my mouth or if my talk is corresponding with my actions. I like what one theologian said, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with a 220 volt electric wire and remain the same. Amen. Jesus said, he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. Well, the next kind of faith that's discussed in James chapter 2 is, is in verses 18 to 19. And here, James says, someone may say, you claim to have faith, and I have good works. Show me your alleged faith without the works, if you can and I will show you my faith by my works, that is, by what I actually do. You believe that God is one, you do well to believe that, James said. The demons also believe that, that God is one, and they shudder, and they bristle, the Amplified Bible says, in awe-filled terror, because they have seen his wrath. Well, James here is describing a second kind of faith, and it's called, by Bible scholars, believe it or not, demonic faith. This is extraordinary because James reveals that even demons have a perverse kind of faith in God because they know he exists. You see, there'll be no atheists or agnostics in hell. Demons already believe and tremble, and they also believe in the deity of the Messiah. I can prove that to you because of a passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 11, where demons confess Jesus as the Son of God. It says that unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, speaking through people, saying, you are the Son of God. Unlike a lot of skeptics and even religious leaders, the demons believed in Jesus, and they also believe in the existence of hell, a place of condemnation. You see, Luke 8.31 also tells us that the demons begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. And demons believe Jesus will be the judge in the future. We see this in the account in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus went over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he was met by two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs. And they were exceedingly fierce so that nobody could pass that way. Except, of course, when Jesus came, they were delivered. And they had cried out saying, Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, even the devil who was speaking through these men understood Bible chronology and that there is a time coming when Jesus will be the judge of this world. So the demons really testified to the validity of the Bible. While a person with dead faith on the one hand is touched only in their intellect, the demons are touched in their emotions because they believe and they tremble knowing that their time is short and their condemnation is coming. 
This kind of emotional faith also cannot save anybody, can it? Well, certainly demons can't be saved, but a human being with just emotional faith or mental assent still can be lost forever. This is because true saving faith involves something more. It involves a transformed life. Being a born-again Christian involves trusting in Jesus, repenting, and inviting Him by His Holy Spirit into our lives to live His life through us and to transform us into His likeness and character. The important question is, do we have this kind of living, saving faith? James first introduced us to two kinds of faith that can never save, dead faith involving the intellect alone and demonic faith involving the emotions as well. But he closes this chapter two by describing a third kind of faith and that's the only kind of dynamic living faith that can save. Let's look what he says in uh, verses 21 to 26 of uh, James chapter 2. James asks, Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he put his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? James says, Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith does express its belief in God through works, that the works of faith are meaningful. The full meaning of believing in the scripture sentence is this, Abraham believed God and was set right with God. That includes action. It's that combination of believing and acting that resulted in Abraham being named the friend of God. Is it not evident, James says, that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? And then he goes on to say it was the same with Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute in Jericho. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. And when you separate faith and works, you get the same thing, dead faith, like a corpse. You see, dynamic faith involves the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Dead faith just touches the intellect. The kind of craven faith the demons exhibited in the Bible involves the emotions, but real Bible dynamic faith involves not only the mind and the emotions, but also a person's will. It involves our resolve to do works, to do the right thing, right actions. A person's will either acts upon truth or refuses to act upon truth. True saving faith leads to positive action. So faith is not just intellectual contemplation and it's not just emotionalism. It's a believing and trusting in God that leads to obedience in doing good works. I like what the British faith apostle Smith Wigglesworth used to say all the time. He said, faith is an act. Well, to illustrate this kind of faith in action, the apostle James in James chapter 2, used two Bible personalities. One is well-known, Abraham, who was the father of the faithful and the friend of God. 
and the other person is not as well known, although she should be, and that was the Jericho prostitute named Rahab. Rahab demonstrated real working faith by being willing to hide and save the lives of the two Israelite spies whom Joshua had sent to spy out the city. James was wise to pick these two persons, a man and a woman, to illustrate real dynamic faith. Actually, you couldn't find two more different personalities, and Abraham was the father of the Jews, while Rahab was a non-Jew, a Gentile. But you see, all the bases are being covered here in this illustration. Abraham was godly. Rahab was a sinner. Yet they both were justified by their faith. You see, it's not by good works that we're saved. It's by our faith. The Bible describes Abraham as the friend of God, whereas Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. So they didn't have anything in common except for one thing. Both decided to exercise their wills to believe and have faith in God. So they both had dynamic, saving faith in God. Abraham, the man of God, demonstrated his saving faith by his works. And also Rahab, the prostitute, demonstrated her saving faith by her works. She hid God's people. It makes me think of the story in the news recently when some Orthodox Jews in the area of Hebron took a wrong turn and suddenly found themselves in a hostile Arab area. The people were about to lynch the Jews when one brave Arab took them into his home and hid them until the authorities could come and rescue the Jewish people. That was faith. Well, what do we learn from all of this? We learn that faith without actions is a dead, non-existent faith. We learn that no matter what a person's background is, God requires both faith and actions in order to please him. Just this morning, as I was preparing for this program, I believe it was no accident that in my daily Bible readings, I was in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And this is what Paul was saying about the necessity of a living, dynamic faith. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ in identification with the Messiah. And so I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives within me. Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that if righteousness could be gained only through the law, Messiah died in vain. And Paul asked the Galatians an important question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard in the gospel? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you merely observe the law? He asked, or was it because you believed what you heard? Paul argued like James argued. He said, consider Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul said, understand then that those who believe become the children of Abraham. The scriptures even foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And so Paul says the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham because God promised Abraham that all nations 
would be blessed through him. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, I must try to bring all of this to a conclusion. It's finally important that we understand that we are living in the culmination of Bible chronology and that every professing believer examine our lives and make sure that we possess true saving faith, which is a dynamic faith, and we understand what's going on in the signs all around us. You see, the enemy of our souls, Satan, is the great deceiver. And one of his tactics is imitation and counterfeit. If he can convince a person that counterfeit faith is true faith versus a living faith in God, then the person is deceived and is under the power of Satan. So here are some questions we can ask ourselves as we examine the legitimacy of our faith. I need to ask myself, was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Yes. But if you've never done that, it's finally important to do it today. Was there a time when my heart was stirred within me to flee from the wrath to come, the wrath that God has predicted for the great tribulation and judgment day? Yes, I've considered this, but have you? Have I ever been seriously sorry for my sins? And have I truly repented and asked God for the forgiveness he extends in Messiah's atonement? Do we truly understand the gospel that Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead and was declared to be the Son of God with power? Do I accept that? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself and the church cannot save me? Religion cannot save me. My parents' faith can't save me. The Pope can't save me. Only the Savior can save me. Have I ever made the decision and purposed in my heart to turn from practicing sin? Do I really hate sin and truly fear God? Or do I secretly love sin and want to continue to enjoy it? These are all important questions. Have I trusted God's mediator, the Messiah, Jesus? Yeshua is his Hebrew name. And am I trusting in him and his righteousness alone for my salvation by responding to the commands he's given? And those commands are to confess my faith in Jesus and and to be baptized as an outward sign for the remission of my sins. And here's another important question to ask. Has there been a notable transformation in my life? Do I find myself regularly doing good works and exploits for the Lord? Or are my good deeds very weak and half-hearted or non-existent? And am I reading this book daily? praying and seeking to grow in the things of the Lord. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our free newsletter and learn about our Holy Land conferences and tours. And at our website, you'll have access to our daily news articles and our videos 24-7. And please tell your friends about our social media. And so until next time, contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. The Jerusalem Channel couldn't exist without you, the viewers, who make our broadcast possible. 
I can't say enough how much we appreciate your comments, your suggestions, and support. From the City of the Great King, I want to tell you how much we value your prayers also. As the people of Israel say, Todah Rabbah, thank you for being a part of this ministry.